Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Grace City Church podcast. If you would like more info on our church, you can visit gracecityboston.com. Now let's get to the sermon. Hey, welcome to uh, Grace City. If I don't know you, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor uh, of Grace City here. At, well, the, I guess this is digital Grace City um, for, for all purposes for uh, this morning. And so uh, just want to say glad uh, that you're here. There's also people here in the room as well, as you heard uh, Abby mention. And so uh, one of the things I, I want to mention before we kind of dive into the message that we have for uh, today is we, we are in the process of releasing something called Sound Faith. And so as much as I love this environment on a Sunday morning and being able to teach and preach and do that, um, it, it, it can be a bit difficult to kind of go deeper in some ways and really talk through some more practical things. And so we, we put together something uh, called um, Sound Faith, and it's really a, a four-part teaching. And, and we're going to be releasing this first four-part teaching over the next few weeks or so. And, and this first, the kind of the topic on this one is how do I enjoy my Bible? And uh, so this will be just 15 minute, kind of 15 to 20 minute teachings, uh, basically diving in uh, into like, how do I, how do I read the Bible? Like what, you know, a lot of people struggle with, with understanding how to do that. And it's, or it's just kind of this cold kind of sterile thing. And so we, we just have put this, this, uh, this teaching together, this set of teachings together uh, to hopefully kind of, um, speak towards that. And so if you'll, you can follow along at gracecityboston.com um, on our newsletter, any of the social media stuff, you'll kind of see that stuff begin to uh, kind of roll out. And so if that sounds like something you're interested in, uh, please check those out as we release them. And um, and there'll be kind of f- fill in uh, um, kind of worksheets with that, all kinds of stuff. So basically like a classroom over YouTube, and uh, it's, which I know everyone's loving the digital stuff right now. Uh, but anyways, I want to say on the front end before we uh, dive into our message tonight. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in uh, Psalm chapter 131, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. We're in a series called Psalms of the Ascent. Uh, songs, we t- kind of tagline on that is songs for the road ahead. And so essentially we've been uh, talking about how do we um, how do we live on this path of Christian discipleship and do it in a healthy way? And so the Psalms of the Ascent that, that we see in that we've been kind of teaching through were basically songs that uh, God's people, the Israelites, that they would sing collectively together as they were making their way to uh, to Jerusalem to celebrate the three various festivals throughout the year. And so really, we're just kind of falling in line with uh, God's church in the Old Testament, singing these songs together. And so each of these uh, songs uh, say something different. And so we've been kind of processing back through that. And so if you haven't seen those, you can kind of go back and see that. But we're going to be in Psalm 131. Uh, one through three. I'm going to pray for God's word here, and then and then we'll kind of dive in to what we're talking about. God, thank you, thank you that you speak to us, um, that you have something to say, that we don't have to walk in confusion, we don't have to walk in uncertainty about what you're trying to communicate to us, God. And so we just pray uh, today, God, this morning, uh, tonight, um, that you would just uh, that you would just do something remarkable through your word. And God, that it would, would speak directly to where we need to, to hear it, directly to where we need to um, receive it, God, that your Holy Spirit would know exactly what we need to hear um, today, God. And so we, we, we pray these things, God, knowing and believing that you, that you hear us, God, that you're listening and that you answer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 131. Now, this is a... Um, a, a, in a lot of ways, a really powerful psalm uh, to to be looking at, uh, and it's essentially a psalm of confession. 
So if you're kind of looking over this verses one through three, you're going to see a lot of type of um, confession type of language. And then one of the other things that you'll notice is this this isn't an easy psalm to embrace. This isn't uh, one that you're going to be able to just kind of look at and be able to take on. It really requires um, it requires you to kind of examine yourself pretty deeply. Like what motivates you? What do you really long for? This is what this psalm is going to kind of bull out of you. Listen to what um, Charles Spurgeon is a pastor I love. Uh, this is what he said about this particular psalm. He says, this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. One of the shortest, I love that, one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest uh, to learn. And so if you're looking at it, it doesn't take long to read, right? It's just three verses. You can kind of knock that out in a, in a very short space, but it takes a long time to learn. It takes a long time, this particular psalm, to apply, a, a long time to, to kind of master. And so he begins this psalm with addressing, essentially addressing the role of pride in his life, which is everyone's favorite subject, the subject of um, pride. And, and you see, pride is a tricky thing. It's kind of a subversive thing, right? So in general, there are two types of pride. If we were thinking about um, the role that kind of pride plays in our life, uh, there's a pride of what I would call the pride of having and then the pride of wanting. Now, um, you can easily classify these essentially as the pride of the strong and as the pride of the weak. So, so think about what it is that pride essentially has its gaze set on. What does it have its, kind of its gaze on? It's, in a lot of ways, it's superiority, right? Pride is, I want to be superior. I want to be over, in control of others, uh, right? I want to have the superiority and, 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 and so some would say, I, I have this, I have the superiority. And then others would say, I want it. This is essentially what pride does. And so pride of the strong, right, or at least they perceive um, that they're, they're strong. They say what? They say, they, they say, I have it, right? And now that's whether, whether you know, someone who's prideful, a prideful person, right? They're either kind of leaning into their resources, their position, their circumstances, their, their place in life. This is what they have a tendency to take pride in, right? So I have more, I control more, I enjoy more, right? These individuals kind of view their surroundings as something they can control. Like their surroundings is something that can really, in some way, anyway, submit to them. So whether that's a, a social circle, a classroom, a conference room, an athletic field, a prideful person says, I can manipulate this environment and I can stand over this environment. That's what essentially what pride is. Now, on the opposite side of pride was the one who's weak says what? I need it. I need the superiority. I, I, I want that, right? They're desirous, because think about this, right? They desire to have others' attention and approval. Now, this one's deceptive because in a lot of ways, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like pride. Right? But, if, but if you look at it closely, what is it doing? Someone who um, is, is what we would say uh, pride of the, the weak or pride of the wanting, what are, what are they always doing? They're always drawing attention to themselves out of lack or out of need. Right? Look at me. Look what I wish I had. Look what I'm, I'm lacking, to, depraved of. Right? It, it's, still, it's still a focus on oneself. And, and so David is saying... David here is, is essentially renouncing all pride in his life. He's saying whether it's pride of the weak uh, or pride of the strong, whether it's pride of need or pride of want, David is recognizing uh, the danger of pride. Now, essentially, he knows what? He knows that God hears who? What type of people does God hear? He hears the humble, 
This is what James, uh, the writer James says in agreement with David. Uh, in James chapter four, verse, th- uh, verse six, he says this. He says, but God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, God resists the one who practices pride, whether the haves or the wants. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, this is what he writes about pride. This is such a strong statement. It'll be on the screen. It's also in your, um, it's also in the QR code in your notes as well, if you want to follow along on that. But he says this. He says, there is one vice of which no man or woman in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which uh, one hardly, or and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is, uh, there is no fault when it makes a man more unpopular. The essential vice, the most evil, is what? Is pride. He goes on to say, he says, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is a complete anti-God state of mind. That's how he said that. He said it's a complete anti-God state of mind. And, And this is why it's important to recognize and to pay close attention to this particular psalm and then to, to live in, in such a way that David writes here. Now, I was thinking about um, this psalm. I was thinking about pride and, and thinking about kind of its opposite and humility. And I've been con- thinking a lot about the role of ambition in the life of a believer. Like how, how does ambition, um, how does it kind of relate to pride? Is ambition wrong? Is this something that God is um, displeased with? Does pride and ambition, uh, does it come from the same place? The the reality is, um, is I think there's something that I would call disordered ambition. And then on the opposite of that, I would call something, uh, I would call kind of its opposite is recalibrated ambition. So disordered ambition is similar to pride in the sense that, listen to this, it's similar in the sense that it only cares about what domination. Disordered uh, ambitions about domination. It's a, it's a lust for domination, right? It can even get to the point where, maybe you know someone like this, it, it can even get to the point where you stop caring about the specifics of what you're doing and you're more concerned with doing it first, doing it best, and doing it better than the others who are doing it alongside of you. Now, this type of ambition is destructive, both to the one practicing it, but also to the one that it's directed towards. And, and so the question we must consider, I want us to think about this morning or think about this night if you're in the room, is, is what is it that we're looking for in our ambition? you think about your ambition in your own life? Is it that we want to find kind of, what, what is it that we want to find at the end of our aspirations? Now, I think in many ways, ambition is what essentially brings a lot of people to a city like Boston. I mean, major cities are filled with what? Ambitious people. This is, this is why we put up with all the stuff that we put up with. Why we put up with the traffic and the prices and the winter if you're in Boston, right? But because there's something um, in the city that, that we can't get anywhere else, right? Most people in a city want to do what? They want to work and, and work hard to be ahead of, of someone else, right? We wanna be in an environment that, that pushes us, that gives us opportunities that we couldn't otherwise get, right? And I think in that, the thing about, uh, as I kind of minister and meet with people, um, there are a lot of Christians doing really incredible things, really healthy, I would, I would say, really healthy, ambitious things in the city. But there are also a lot of Christians in the city who I think have disordered ambition and, and who need to recalibrate their ambition in, in such a way that it would honor God. 
right? Because listen, I don't, I don't believe that that we have to be people who can like kind of shun back from am, ambition, right? I think a recalibrated type of ambition is really good. It, it's really healthy. It's actually good for uh, the kingdom. Now, I, I, as I've, I've I've been thinking about am, ambition, and I've I've learned a lot about ambition and pride from an early church father. His name is Saint uh, Augustine, and he. Um, he wrote in an autobiography called The Confessions. Maybe you've read it before. It's an incredible, uh, incredible book here. Um, uh, this is what he says. He, he's retelling a story, essentially, uh, about he and his friends kind of recalibrating their uh, ambitions, right? And so they've been kind of pursuing their lifelong dreams, if you're, uh, if you're reading this book, to kind of make, make it in their field, which was in the state in a lot of ways. So they want to obtain wealth and, and marriage, right? And, and so they're, they're kind of in this space where many of them begin to realize that what they've been pursuing is incorrect, that their ambition needs to be recalibrated, uh, that it has been a disordered ambition in, in a lot of ways. And so he tells the following story. Listen to this following story about one of the, his kind of companion's conversion story as they're, they're pursuing after uh, disordered ambition. It says this. It says, suddenly he was filled with holy love and sobering shame. Angry with himself, he turned his eyes to his friend and he said to him, this is his friend, tell me, I, I beg of you, what do we hope to achieve with all of our labors? What is our aim in life? What is the motive of our service to the state? Can we hope to have any higher office in the palace than to be friends with the emperor? And isn't it that position not fragile and full of dangers? And when will we arrive there? Whereas if I wish, here it is. So this is kind of the landing spot that they, this group of friends get to. He says, whereas if I wish to become God's friend, in an instant, I may become that now. See, they've been pursuing a lifestyle that they thought would bring satisfaction and joy. They've been this kind of this group of ambitious friends who were working their way up the ladder um, in, in Milan, in this particular city that they were operating in, this really powerful, um, prestigious city. But they were finding their pursuits empty. They were finding their ambitions empty. They, they were recognizing that their ambitions, uh, that they were disordered. Now, if you follow this story along, right, um, it wasn't after this kind of moment and what God began to do in this group of friends, it wasn't that they were no longer ambitious, right? They just learned to recalibrate their ambition with a, a larger and a fuller goal. And, and essentially, for them, it was what? It was what to be a friend of God. And, and so they just said, hey, every pursuit that we do is going to pursue out of this desire and this ambition uh, to be, uh, essentially to be a friend uh, of God. And so they would still work hard. They would still test themselves. They would still gain influence and still pursue dreams, but they would do it from a different place. James K. Smith, talking about this particular thing that was going on um, with Augustine's friends, uh, says this. It says, what is the arc of a life whose aspiration is to be a friend of God? What difference would that make Listen to this. He says, this is the only ambition that comes with security, with a rest from anxiety of every other ambition, because all other ambitions are fragile. They're fraught. The attention of others is fickle. Domination of others is always temporary. You can't win forever. To aspire to friendship with God, however, is an ambition of something you can never lose. It is to get the attention of someone, listen how he ends it. He says, it is to get the attention of someone who sees you and knows you and will never stop loving you. He said, if you want to pursue ambition, pursue the ambition of being in relationship with God. 
of to to use their language of of being a friend of God. See, I think in many ways, disordered ambition is really just an unhealthy desire to be noticed. Isn't it? Like if you get underneath people's disordered ambition, really under that is just someone who just wants to be noticed, to, to, to be seen, right? And, and so perhaps, um, perhaps our desire is to, to be superior as we see with pride or, or, or we have an ambition to win at all costs, right? I, I think in, in a lot of ways, it's really just uh, a craving for something different. Could it be, could it be an, uh, in so many ways, an unarticulated hunger to be noticed by God our Father? this kind of paternal figure that we have in front of us. Listen to what David says. Look back, um, look back at this psalm and look what he says in verse one. So he starts out, um, he starts out and says, um, Lord, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Verse two. He says, instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaning child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. So, so he's recognizing, he's saying, my heart wasn't proud. My eyes aren't haughty. And then he says, uh, he says I do not get involved with things too great or too uh, or too wondrous for me. Now, these things too great or too wondrous for me uh, are essentially the schemes and the speculative plans of, of man, right? Ways to get ahead. And he says, I'm not, I'm, David's like, I'm not working on ways to get ahead. I'm, I'm not trying to figure out how to, to be noticed or to dominate others, right? It, it's a recognition um, that, that these things come from arrogance rather than humility, that these seeking after things are too great or too wondrous, and so, so I was thinking about that. I'm thinking, okay, so how did David get here? Like, it's a bit strange to read a psalm where a guy is admitting that he's humble. That feels like a little counter. But, but, but how, did, how did David get there? How do, we, how do we essentially begin to develop humility in life? Okay, well, so let's think about David. If you don't know much about David, let's think about David's journey, right, to essentially be the king of Israel. So David was the youngest of all of his brothers, when, when Samuel was sent by God to anoint the next king of Israel, he came to Jesse, who was David's dad. And, and Jesse didn't even, bring, didn't even bring David out. Samuel had to work through all the sons of Jesse and basically was like, is there someone else? Do you have any else? And he's like, oh yeah, my, my youngest son is actually in the field. He was in the field with the animals, right? So then what, what happens? We see David's what? He secretly anointed the king and then he spends what? He spends the next 15 years in waiting. And during this 15 years, between uh, when he was 15, anointed as king, to when he became king, around 30, he, he, what was this time filled with? Well, during this time, he defeated Goliath and became a remarkable hero of God's people. He, he gained the, the scorn of Israel's first king, Saul, because of the multiple military victories that he had. He spent years fleeing from him, living in caves, and depending on the favor and the kindness of his friends to care for, until he's finally ushered into the kingship of Israel after learning his best friend's death. This was David's story. See, sometimes we hear David's story as a king of Israel, and we just, we kind of fly to the kingship. But David spent 15 years knowing 
that he was the rightful king of Israel and yet not sitting on the throne. 15. I think, here's what I think. I think God was producing a type of humility in David's heart in this season, right? It wasn't a short season. Some of you, some of you may need to like receive that today. It wasn't a short season for him. But I think, I think God was producing something in him, right? Maybe, maybe that's where you're at. Maybe, maybe he was killing a, a desire. Uh, maybe he's, he's, he's doing that for you, right? He's killing a desire that you have. Maybe, you, maybe you're pursuing, trying to dominate in your particular field, right? And, and, and maybe like David, God's been kind of doing a work on you. Um, he's kind of calling you to follow the way of Jesus in your ambition, right? He needs to kill some stuff in you. And that's hard. It's a hard season to be in. You, you see that like David's collective experience to all this stuff that was going on in David's life. And the truths that he learned along the way were doing what? They were building a man who knew to trust in God's faithfulness and God's vision for his life, not his own. These things were coming together, right? Because David would have done, he would have done what? He would have jumped straight to kingship. But God said, no, David, I want to produce something in you. I want to kill disordered ambition in you. I want you to um, be someone who can rightly write this psalm and say, I, I'm, I, I don't have pride in my heart. My eyes are not looking up. I, I, I need to do this for you. Okay, so kick down, um, into, uh, kick down into verse two. So he says, I'm not practicing pride. I'm, I'm seeking to be humble, practice humility. I'm saying no to disordered ambition. And then he gets to verse two and he says, instead... I have come and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, my soul is like a weaned child. So I want us to think about this imagery for a, a moment. Um, David has essentially positioned himself as a child in relation to God, right? So he's gonna state that the result of not practicing unhealthy pride and not pursuing worldly schemes is that his soul is what? His soul is now calm and quiet. This is the picture of the life of someone who's living humbly, right? So if we're looking at this metaphor and illustration that he gives us, he, he says, I'm, I'm like a weaned child. Now, what is a weaned child? I think it's important. Most of our, um, most of our churches, uh, younger people that don't have kids. And, um, and so this, this process uh, of being, some of you hear it and you're like, I don't even know, don't even know what that means. I have no, not, not sure what that is. Well, essentially a, a weaned child is a child who no longer depends on his mother for food. For, for breast milk, what, right? This is one who's been removed from breastfeeding is begin to kind of this process of moving into solid foods. Now, what you have to understand about Near Eastern cultures is that children weren't weaned from their mom until around three years of age and sometimes older. Three years or older. Now, as you can imagine, at this particular age, a child's cognitive and verbal abilities are, are quite developed. They're pretty, far, uh, they're pretty far down the line, right? Now, if you know anything about three-year-olds, I actually have a three-year-old, um, so I know quite a bit about three-year-old. Um, when they want something, they can be pretty demanding, like extremely demanding uh, as, um, as a, as a three-year-old, right? And, and maybe unless it's just mine. And so this transition to getting them to move from nourishment and food from mom to simply being in mom's presence was a difficult thing. 
It, it, in a lot of ways, it took an emotional, a psychological toll on a, a young child, right? You can just imagine, if you can imagine a three-year-old or a four-year-old, you can imagine their anger, their tears, their disappointment, their confusion, and this, their kind of just grief when this process starts. When the mom's saying, no, no, like, no more. It's time to, to wean you off, right? This, a, a child who's weaned is one who's went through this difficult process. This is a, a child who went through a struggle. This is what? What is this for the child? This is maturation. It's maturity. To be a, a weaned child is, is one that, that means that you're growing, that you're maturing. Author Weiser um, says this. He says, the Christian is like an infant crying loudly for his mother's breasts, but like a weaned child that quietly rests by his mother's side, happy in being with her. That's what he says. Now, does, uh, no desire now comes between him and his God. He is sure that God knows what he needs before he asks him. And just as the child gradually breaks off the habit of regarding his mother only as a means, hear this, only as a means for satisfying his own desires and learns to love her for her own sake. So the worshiper after a struggle, has reached an attitude of mind in which he desires God for himself and not as a means of fulfillment of his own wishes. His life's center of gravity has shifted, and now he rests no longer in himself, but in God. This is what it means to be a weaned child. Charles Spurgeon says, to be a weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth of our spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys once appeared to be essential and find our solace in him who denies them to us. So what did, what did essentially David learn? David learned how to enjoy the presence of God, not looking for what God could provide, but by simply being in the closeness of his presence. This is what it means to be like a weaned child. See, Christian maturity, hear this, Christian maturity means we no longer look to God to simply um, meet our kind of superficial blessings or extravagant outcomes, right? So maybe you came to God out of desperation, out of a situation in which you needed a miraculous intervention. Now, does God still answer those calls? Yes. 100% he, he still answers those calls. But should we expect each day to be filled with the miraculous? Is that what it means to follow the way of Jesus daily? You See, I think in a lot of ways, maturity reveals itself in the everyday Christian walk. Every day. I think that um, does God still provide the miraculous? Yes. Does, does God still continue to pursue us through means that awe us? Yes. He does. Should, should our spiritual walk in relationship with God be dependent on God breaking in daily or weekly? No. I don't think so. See, David is highlighting two wonderful truths about our maturity. This is what he's saying. He's saying um, he doesn't need to depend on his own abilities and pursuits to bring about joy in his life. And he also doesn't need God to align his circumstances and situation to produce a calm and quiet soul. He's saying, man, I, 
I'm, I'm like a wean child. Like I just wanna be in the presence of God just to be in his presence. Like I don't need him to do something miraculous. I, I don't need him to do something just that awes me and in, in, in just divine. They've just said, man, like a kid, I just wanna be close to my mom. Not for what she can give me, but just because she's my mom. And David's saying, this, this is where I am. This is, this, is where I'm, um, this is where I'm at. See, this maturity that we see here, this maturity means we're no longer pushing to the front of the line, right, which would be pride and disordered ambition, nor, we're, nor are we kind of setting ridiculously like really high expectations from God each day. It's a change from responding to God out of a expectation and instead responding to God out of love. We're not expecting something from him. We're not responding out of expectation. We're responding out of simply love for him. See, it's a difference between being overly dependent on God and willingly trustful of him. See, immaturity is what? It's always looking for the next supernatural event or experience. You're always looking to God to align your circumstances so that life is always enjoyable or pleasant. This is immaturity. It is uh, it's as if God is like some Aladdin genie. It's like, uh, it's like a child who hasn't been weaned from his mom, her mom. A, a child who can't simply be in the presence of mom without the expectation of receiving something from mom. Now, I, I think a lot of people, um, as I was considering this, I, I do think in some ways there can be a real season of difficulty, when, especially when someone first becomes a believer. Uh, a follower of Christ. I think many people even question whether they're still a Christian, right? You, and maybe this you, maybe you're listening and you've thought, man, I don't, I don't really feel like I did when I first became a Christian. You know, maybe you've thought, I mean, I had this like fire inside of me and it seems like that thing's gone. Like that used to be there and it just seems like that's just kind of wasted away. It, it takes, listen, it takes, um, it takes some time for us to learn how to enjoy God's presence alone. Like without some transcendent experience. It's a learning to trust and love God in still moments. That's, that's maturity. In everyday, ordinary life, that's what maturity is. It's, it's in days where you feel anxious, where you feel uncertain, where you feel confused. This is maturity. This is how we walk the way of Jesus. Eugene Peterson writes, he says, when we, when we feel this way, We've thought perhaps we're not a Christian anymore. We're struggling. He says, God hasn't abandoned you and you haven't done anything wrong. He says, you are being weaned. The apron strings have been cut. You are free to come to God or not come to him. You are in a sense on your own with an open invitation to listen and receive and enjoy our Lord. Now look how he ends it. Look at verse, uh, look at verse three here. He says, Israel, Put your hope in the Lord both now and forever. Okay, so he's walked through this particular psalm and he said, my, my heart is not prideful. My eyes aren't looking up. They're not, not haughty. He says, actually, I'm, my, I'm calm in my spirit. Um, I'm quiet in my spirit. I've, I've learned to be in nearness and closeness to God and without, without an expectation that God would do something incredible or miraculous, I'm just there for him. He doesn't have to align my circumstances. And then he ends it and he says this, he says, Israel, God's people, this is who Israel, this is who he's talking to. He says, put your hope in the Lord. See, all of us are putting our hope in something. 
We're all desirous of something. We're all looking towards something, I think, outside of ourselves. And so David states that the logical conclusion for him to put his hope is in God and not in his achievements. Now, um, this ending reminds me of something that Jesus said in John chapter 15, uh, starting in verse four. Um, listen to what Jesus says, this idea of having our hope placed in God. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, remain in me and I in you. And he says, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself, unless it remains on the vine, uh, neither can you unless you remain in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Because you can do what? You can do nothing apart from me. Verse six, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire and they, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So Jesus is laying out for his disciples, what? How to please the father. He, he's saying, if you want to have a, a meaningful life, if you want to ensure that you're not living uh, out of a disordered kind of mindset, disordered ambition, he says what? He says, stay close to the way of Jesus. He says, trust Jesus, trust me. Like if you haven't, trust me, remain in me. Maybe your translation says, abide in me. Put your hope in me, not your ambition, not your desire for success, not your desire for domination. He says, put it in me, stay close to me. This is what Jesus says, stay close to me. You see the danger here in John 15, we see the danger here in living a pride-filled life. What does he say? He says, a life with ambition that is disordered. What does he say in verse six? He says, if anyone does not remain in me, right, is anyone not in relationship with me, not close with me, what, what happens here? So he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather him and throw him into the fire. And, and, and there's burn. There's very real consequences for those who um, are, are pursuing a life that is lined up with disorder ambition, for those who haven't trusted Christ. He says, "Put if you want hope, come to me. God's saying, if you want hope, come to me. Come to me through Jesus. Don't pursue these things at what? The end to the end in death. The, the wide road we, we talked about at the beginning of the series, the kind of the invitation that Jesus put forward is what? That there's a wide path that leads to where? that leads to death. And there's a narrow road, a narrow path that leads to what? Life, life. So he says, if you want life, come in close to me. And, and so maybe maybe, um, maybe today for you, um, you that's, that's it for you. You just need to, you need to give your life to Jesus. You, you need to, to trust in him. Keep, you need to stop trusting yourself. Stop, stop pursuing after disordered ambition. Maybe you need to um, have a, a realignment, right? You need to reorientate uh, your ambition around Jesus. That, that you and that, like Augustine's friends, that, that you could be a friend of God right now, immediately. Maybe that, that's for you what you need to do. Maybe you're here and, um, man, you, you're just in a season or you're listening and you've just been in a season where, um, where God's just destroying pride in your heart and producing humility in your life and you just need to embrace it. Like you've just been fighting it and you just need to 
um, embrace it. And maybe not even just embrace it. Maybe you need to thank God for it. He's, he's putting you through the season of crushing. Like, like, so, like David did, like so many, so many people that we follow along in the Bible in this season of producing, that God is producing something in them. Or, or maybe you're here or you're listening and you would identify as a follower of Jesus, but, but you've got dis, disordered ambition um, in, it, in your life and in your heart. And you've been practicing pride, right? You've been seeking to, to dominate at all costs, no, who, who, no matter who it hurts, as long as you're kind of getting ahead. And so maybe you're just realizing, man, that is not the way of Jesus. And maybe you need to change that up. Maybe you need to repent to God today. Ask him to forgive you. Begin to kind of work on, on recalibrating your ambition in such a way um, that it would, would honor God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. God, we love you. We're grateful. Um, God, that you give us a way, uh, that you give us hope. God, that we don't have to um, produce something. God, I, I do ask that you would uh, help us to, to, to just respond to you out of a desire to get something from you. But God, you would teach us what it means to just enjoy your presence, to be close to you in stillness. God, that we would be like um, David and we would learn what it means to have a, a quiet soul, God, a still soul, um, particularly in a season that, that, that we're in right now that creates so much um, anxiety and confusion for so many of us, God. We, we want to we wanna be able to pray this psalm like David. And so God, we love you and we're, we're just so thankful. Um, for all that you you do for us, God, and all that you've done for us, God, and we we trust um, we trust our lives to you. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen.